0: Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Herrington as he shares this week's message. Today, Jesus is going to have those times where some unmatched opponents are going to come to him and he's finally going to put them in their place. Reviewing what we've learned already from Mark chapter 11 and 12, and we are in Mark chapter 12, it's last week of Jesus' ministry, His earthly ministry. He's entered Jerusalem to assert His authority as the Messiah, as the Christ. He's entered Jerusalem to the cheers of the adoring crowd. Children are singing His name. He's cleansed the temple of corruption. He's cursed and killed the fig tree, and He accepted the worship of children and the crowd that's been following him. This has created a problem for the Jewish religious and political leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians. Jesus' actions are threatening their power base, and they're afraid of losing influence to him and control. In retaliation, They challenge Jesus' authority to do such things and his acceptance of receiving the title of Messiah of Christ or the authority of the Messiah. The religious and political leaders resent Jesus. They resent him not only because he has captured the heart of the people, but also because of their failure to use his popularity for their own agenda. And you always find that people either try to adapt you and use you or they want to just put you down. The religious leaders decide to join forces and they ask Jesus three questions designed to entrap him and to limit his influence among the people. The Herodians ask a political question about taxes. Now this is all about the law, but they ask, is it wrong for us to pay taxes to Caesar, who makes himself God? The Sadducees ask a religious question about the resurrection. Do the dead rise again? The Pharisees, as we saw last week, followed with a legal question about the law of Moses and the writings of the prophets. In today's passage, Jesus is going to turn the tables, so to speak, and he asks the religious leaders the theological question about King David and the Messiah. So with that, we're in Mark chapter 12, 35 through 37. We can read that silently together as I read out loud where it says, Mark records, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes... Say that Christ is the son of David. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Father, give us wisdom. Help us to understand these passages sometimes that can be very difficult to understand, or, or seem to be irrelevant to our stance today. But let us open your word, and may your spirit speak to us freely, and may we respond to your spirit, and may we, like the people, hear your word gladly. We pray this once again in Christ's name. Amen. Now, reflecting back to Mark 1.1, we saw that Mark's gospel, he's writing his gospel in order to give the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. Mark is writing an account of the life and ministry of Jesus in order to proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God to the Christian church of Rome. The religious leaders, meantime, have been questioning Jesus' authority, and he had answered their questions so well, so wisely, that it says that no one dared to ask him any more questions. So now Jesus is going on the offensive with some questions of his own. Now, we find himself, we find Jesus, he's at the temple, he's teaching. Knowing that his ministry is at the end, he has a few days left, and the cross is near, he wants to use it wisely, using the best time, and he's using it teaching by discipling the crowd, his disciples. He turns to the scribes that are lingering among the edges of the crowd, and he asks them a theological question. He says, how can you, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? So he's wanting to talk about what the scribes teach. They've been asking him about his teaching and his beliefs, so he now turns the table and says, how can they teach this? Now, I want to review the word Christ. Christ is a title that comes from the Greek word. It's used for the Hebrew word Messiah. The Messiah is also known as the anointed one in the Old Testament. He's the one who will come as the conquering king who will rule in majesty. He is the promised one that they've been looking for. The passage in question that Jesus is asking is found in Psalms 110, where the psalmist writes, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, this is the most quoted chapter in the New Testament, and it was considered a messianic psalm that prophesies of the coming victorious king. In a nutshell, this psalm prophesies that one day, the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one, who sits at the right hand of God, will rule in the midst of God's enemies, and David's enemies as well. That God's people will offer themselves freely to him, and that he will shatter the kings on the day of his wrath, and he will execute judgment among the nations. This is what the Hebrew children were looking for. This was their hope. This is what they yearned for a renewing of Israel, a renewing of the Jewish nation. Jesus is pointing out that the scribes taught that the Messiah, the anointed one, would be a king coming from the line of King David who would liberate his people, the Jews. They taught that the anointed one of God, though, would only be just a normal human being. He would be a human man, a descendant of David. He would be a great military man. What Jesus is doing here, he's going to correct their teaching. For their concept well, the messiah is an error he does this by asking if david himself calls him lord so how is he his son in other words how can he be both lord and son the theological issue is how can the son be superior to the father in those days in that ancient times the fathers were always considered greater than the son David was great. Solomon was wonderful, but he was still underneath David, and so on and so forth. But in this case, they're saying, wait a second. Something different here is taking place in Psalms 110. And Jesus is bringing their attention to it. He's asking, is the Messiah, is the Christ the Son of David, or is he the Lord of David? How can he be both? The ESV Study Bible writes that the title The Son of David reflects the common understanding that the Messiah would be a royal descendant of David, yet David calls the Messiah Lord. Not just Lord, but His Lord. How can that be? Jesus is making three points about this psalm. The Messiah is more than just David's biological son. He's more than just a descendant of David. The Messiah is more highly exalted than David. He will assume a greater status than David did, which is kind of really in the Jewish mind is hard to comprehend. Third point that Jesus is making is that the Messiah is God. He is the Son of God. In other words, though junior in age, saying Jesus is younger than David in human form, the Messiah is will be superior in rank than David. The Messiah is to be understood as David's Lord rather than his son. In other words, Jesus is saying is that in Psalms 10, he says, it is written by the Holy Spirit through King David. This is what he explains in his teaching when he says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. In other words, Jesus is not saying, this is my interpretation. What he's telling the scribes and the people is saying, here, you need to understand what Psalms 110. This is written by the Holy Spirit through King David. It's written about the Messiah. He's the coming king who will rule in righteousness. And it also affirms the deity of the Messiah. In other words, he's going to be more than just a human man. Now you can imagine the crowd loves seeing the religious leaders being duped. It says that great throng heard him gladly. I think that they were just as done with the scribes as much as Jesus was. In Matthew's account of this exchange, it's noted that no one was able to answer him a word. They could not give a reason. Nor from that day did anyone ever dare ask Jesus any more questions. Here's the problem that Jesus is pointing out. The problem is that the religious leaders truly do not know who Jesus is. Get this. They do not know who Jesus truly is and where he comes from. They did not understand that he was from God and that he is God. They were ignorant of his identity and the source of his power to do miracles and the authority of his message. They were trying to shut him up. They were trying to kill him. They were trying to put him down, not realizing that the whole time they were viewing the very one that they had been praying for. Sadly, the one that they had been praying for was to come was right in front of them. And all they desired to do was to shut him up and kill him. They did not know who Jesus was. The promise is given many times in the Old Testament. The scribes were looking, but they were so lacking in understanding that they were actually blind. And Jesus is going to address their blindness as we look at next week. But here, the people who should have known who the Messiah was could not even teach about the Messiah correctly and could not even recognize him when he was before him. If they were to look in the Old Testament, they would see that the son of David was to come. He was going to be a great person, but he was going to be more than that. In 2 Samuel, we see in the Old Testament, it says, "'Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David,' When your days are fulfilled, when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up from your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Very well, they can understand it. So there is going to be a son coming from David. In Psalms eighty-nine, he says, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have swore to David my servant, I will establish your offspring, and I will build your throne. Again in Isaiah, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, speaking of David's father, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. As you can see, as Revelation becomes more progressive, and then Jeremiah, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as a king and deal wisely. He shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. That's what Psalms 110 was proclaiming. In these days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So the scribes should have seen, yes, it began as a physical descendant of God. But yet there would be something much greater. Mark has recorded three times that others have proclaimed Jesus as the Christ, the promised one, the son of David. As we've seen, the son of David, again, was a term in which it would show that that would be the Messiah. Peter's declaration in Mark that we saw says, You are the Christ, the cries of the blind man, son of David. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Or the shouts of the crowd of the children. Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest You see, they were angry because Jesus was accepting the adoration of the people. He was accepting, finally, now after all these these years of his ministry, he's accepting that title, so to speak, of Messiah, the Christ. He's identifying with that, and there could be none of that. You see, the real issue is not taxes. It's not about the resurrection or the priority of the laws, but it's the identity of the Messiah that was the true problem. They believed that a Messiah would come, that they were ignorant of who he truly would be. And in this passage, Jesus emphasizes that the Son of David is not just a special descendant of David, but he's also the Son of God. Take your Bibles, if you would, with me and turn to John chapter 1. Let's read of the Apostle John's testimony about who Christ was. Famous portion of scripture. Many of you have this memorized. Or at least you're familiar enough to know how it reads. In John chapter 1, we see a a greater vision of who Jesus is. Matthew gives us the genealogy, shows how he is the son of David. Mark just begins, here's the gospel of the son of God. John, as we're going to see, gives us more of that. While Luke gives us how he's the son of man, so to speak, or or is human, how he comes back to Adam. But in John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Look at verse 4. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. But then go to verse 14. You say, okay, this was God, but in verse 14, it describes who He is. And the Word became what? Flesh. And He dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, they were trying to shut Jesus up. Their desire was to kill him. They would not accept his authority. They would not accept his ministry. They would not accept his miracles. They could not accept who he truly was. Here's some truths that I want to give to you as we look at this passage of Scripture. My thoughts here in the truth is here's what we need to recognize about the Messiah. Because it's important. Number one, the Messiah is the Son of God. That's what Jesus is saying here. The Messiah is the Son of God. This is what Scripture tells us in its totality. The second thing, we learned that the Messiah is also is the Son of David. He is the physical descendant of David. And thirdly, Jesus is the Anointed One. Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah, and he's the Christ. He's the son of God, the son of David. The gospel speaks and gives evidence to that fact, which leads us to number four. And this is the truth that we need to live in, that Jesus is both God and man. So they didn't understand who Jesus was. And this is integral to whether or not they were going to accept him his ministry, his message, and his miracles. They, in the end, would reject him. And it was important for Mark, as we think of Mark, why is he writing this? Why is he including this? It was important for you and I to understand that Mark needs to make the point clear to the Christians in Rome. You need to remember that this was especially important for those in Rome because they lived in a world in which they were required to worship a man-god, Caesar. Caesar. Caesar to them was more than just a man, just a ruler, he was a God. Hence why they were wondering, should they pay taxes with Caesar's money? Because on the money it said that Caesar was the son of God. So are we supposed to give that? Should we even touch it? Should we give any type of credence to it? And Jesus said, give unto Caesar the things that are Caesar and the things that are unto God, the things that are God. That was the first question. The church here was facing persecution... Because they worshipped a different God-man. And that was Jesus. And these two beliefs were in direct conflict. So Mark is writing to encourage them. Listen, Jesus is both God and man. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the promised Savior of the world. From Back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, He's the one that we've been hoping for. I want to give you the importance of this, because as soon as we hear that he's both God and man, we say, okay, we understand it, but you need to understand why that's important. I like to bring your attention to Wade Grumman, who writes about the importance of the incarnation. It's here on the screen, just to help us understand it. We have to recognize that from the divine nature to the human nature... Although Jesus' human nature did not change in its essential character because it was united with the divine nature and the one person of Christ, Jesus' human nature gained a worthiness to be worshipped. In other words, as the Son of God, He is worthy to be worshipped and He has an inability to sin, both which did not belong to human beings. In other words, if Jesus was not God, He would not be without sin. He would not be an acceptable sacrifice for you and I. He would not be worthy to be worshipped. But from the human nature to the divine, how does that work? Well, Jesus' human nature gave him the ability to experience suffering and death. It gave him ability to understand by experience what we are experiencing. Hence, Paul could say, there's nothing that you haven't experienced that Jesus hasn't experienced. It also gave the ability to be our substitute sacrifice, which Jesus as God alone could not have done. This is important for us to understand, is that Jesus becoming human was important so that he could experience suffering and death, so he could understand by experience what we experience, and so he could be our substitute sacrifice. Without that, you and I would be without hope. At the end of this, you and I can easily lose sight of all what's going on. We think, wow, this is just big theology. This is something difficult for you and I to understand. But it's by far the most amazing miracle there is in Scripture. The fact that the Son of God became man is the most amazing miracle, even the creation of the world to the parting of the Red Sea to the rising of Lazarus. This miracle is the greatest of all. It's more amazing than the resurrection, than all those things. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God can become man and join himself to human nature forever so that the infinite God became one person with finite man will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. It is something hard for you and I to understand, but it's very profound, and you and I need to spend time thinking about that and dwelling on that. the Scribes could could not. This concept led them to deny Jesus and to reject Jesus. You and I need to be careful not to fall into the same trap as the religious leaders of Jesus' day. You see, they were looking and praying for a military leader, a national hero to right the wrongs that they had suffered for hundreds of years under Alexander the Great, under the the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians and the Romans. What they really needed, though, was a Savior to save them from their sins. And today, you and I are also being told that we need a national leader that we need some type of military movement or we need some type of social construct to bring us all together. Let diversity and everything else, but bring us all together or we're going to go to the brink of destruction. However, let me tell you, Christians, the things that you and I need to remember that's of most importance in all of this world is that you and I, that the world needs a Savior. Amen? Amen? We need a savior. We don't need therapists. We don't need military heroes. We don't need people who can just come in and make economy great. Are all those things wonderful? Yes. Are all those things needful? Yes. Common grace? Yes. But above all, people need a savior building on what we spoke about last week. They missed the point. They thought they needed something much different. You and I live in a world in which the world it just seems to be topsy-turvy. We don't have a Caesar that is a man-God, but we've made other things man-God, including ourselves, our needs, our desires, our wants. And to realize that there already is a God-man. It's Jesus. He's come to be our Savior. He's come to right those things that were wrong. He's come to reconcile us uh, back to God, and that is the greatest ministry that we can be given. We are in need of a Savior. Those that are broken need a Savior. Those that are fallen need a Savior. Those that are hurting, they need a Savior. Let me come to this point, because what does that mean for us today? What does this simple little passage mean for us today? Well, very simply, I think number one, I think this is where we want to park here just for a moment on the message, is that the Holy Spirit reveals this truth, To the children of God. You say, what's the truth? Who Jesus is. The identity of Jesus. Jesus confirms that it was David who wrote this psalm under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit today continues to declare the glory of Jesus. John chapter 16 says, when the spirit of truth comes, Jesus speaking to his disciples said, He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. And he will glorify me, speaking of Jesus, for he will take what is mine and he will declare it to you. In 1 Corinthians, I want you to understand, Paul writes, that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can ever say that Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Take your Bibles if you would please, Romans chapter 1. As we continue to see that it's the Holy Spirit that reveals the truth that Jesus, Messiah, is both God and man. In Romans chapter 1, look at verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of Christ, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Verse 3, concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. He was man, in verse 4, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Holy Spirit reveals this truth. Without the Holy Spirit, get this, without the Holy Spirit, you and I cannot know Christ. Let me say it again. Without the Holy Spirit, you and I cannot know Christ. This is why the religious leaders did not recognize their own Messiah. For they were blinded and they were deaf to the Holy Spirit. When the wind blew, it did not blow through them. The Holy Spirit points that this Jesus is both God and man. The incarnation, he is both divine and also able to be our substitute. You say, well, why is that so important? I give you two reasons, Some notes Is that if you and I embrace the truth of who Jesus truly is, that truth will lead to life. First John says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. In John 11, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. If you believe this, if the Holy Spirit has revealed it to you, and you have accepted it, you have embraced who Jesus is, and you've come before him and accept the works that he's done on your behalf, then you have life, however... If you have not embraced it, to deny this truth is to be condemned. To deny who Jesus is is to be condemned. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son, and no one who denies the Son has the Father. So anyone who denies that Jesus is God is condemned. He also says in 1 John, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So everyone who says that Jesus is also human is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the very spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already, to deny the incarnation, the God-man, that Jesus, Messiah, is both God and man, is to be condemned. It's a sad truth that the religious leaders, the ones who should have recognized Jesus, who should have taught correctly who the Messiah was, who should have accepted the teaching of Jesus, who should have rejoiced at the miracles of Jesus, who should have embraced him as one of their own rejected the holy spirit speaks but he only reveals it to his children and his children embrace it to reject it is to be condemned then my second point for what this means is not only does the holy spirit reveal this truth to the children of god but if jesus is god then he is due if this truth is real If Jesus is God, if he is both God and man, then he is due worship, he is due glory, he is due honor, he is due obedience, and he's due commitment. Scripture tells us just last week, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. We spoke of the Great Commission in the adult Sunday school class, in which the Great Commission tells us that we're to to teach people all that Jesus taught in other words, it's all of Scripture, as Paul who had said, that through his prophets and the Holy Spirit concerning his Son. But We have so many people who want to take the Bible. And even when it becomes to the letters in red, they say, well, the letters in red are, are more important than the rest. It's not true. But even then, we'll take the letters in red, the words of Jesus, and then now some of them, well, we don't like these, so now we start cutting and whiting out those truths and those words. If Jesus is God, then what is your response to him? Has the Holy Spirit uh, revealed to you who Jesus is? Are you today giving him glory and honor? Have you given him obedience, and commitment? In other words, how have you responded to Jesus' claim that he is the Christ, the Messiah? What effect does it have in your world today? How does it affect your finances? How does it affect your relationships? How does it affect your entertainment? How does it affect that which you worship, that which you focus on? If you're still wrestling with who Jesus is this morning, then I beg you to consider the evidence and the testimony of Scripture and pray for understanding. Would you embrace that Jesus is Lord? Ask the Holy Spirit for wisdom, to see the glory of Jesus, see who He truly is, and would you embrace Him? Would you repent from dead works and put your trust that God has accepted what he's done, and you can stand before him reconciled to the Son. If you have family and friends that have not yet embraced Jesus, then would you pray to the Father that he might send the Holy Spirit to blow into their hearts by opening their blind eyes to see Jesus. You see, in the end, people accepting Jesus is not really based so much on me. It's not about my ability to convince them, my ability to transform their heart, my ability to be the greatest example, or my ability to to do some type of thing in argumentative or apologetics or some type of defense. In the end, it's the breath of the Holy Spirit as it blows through and expresses who Jesus is. And so for you and I, for those of us that still have loved ones and friends who do not know Jesus, then yes, we must evangelize. Yes, we must share the gospel. Yes, we must be ready to give a defense. But above all, the greatest thing that we must do is pray that the Holy Spirit will move in their hearts. Would you commit to that today? If you've embraced Jesus, then begin praying for the Holy Spirit to reveal more of Jesus to you and your friends. If you have not yet, then would you embrace Jesus today? The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Don't reject who Jesus is. For Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of David came to save the world. Would you embrace that this morning with every head bowed and every eye closed? I'd ask for you to take a moment. Would you take a moment just to pause? Would you consider... And then would you respond and pray who the Holy Spirit has revealed Jesus to be and respond to what your next move is, your next step, proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. Father, I thank you for the Spirit. For without the Spirit, we would be without hope. For it's a Spirit that speaks of you. It's your Spirit that's come and blown into our hearts and, and removed our old stony heart and given us a new heart, one that can see you. Father, I pray that you'd open the eyes of those that might be spiritually blind and open the ears of those that may be spiritually deaf, that we may be able to hear and see your word and see Jesus anew. And Lord, may we give thanks to the Spirit. May you do your work in those that we love and those that we care about as we share the gospel. And Father, may we also respond to the Messiah, the Savior of the world. May we show him honor and do respect bring us into repentance and bring us into obedience and commitment to follow him. Lord, we thank you for him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you.